It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 308 for September 2nd, 2012. This week, where are you going in design? How to speed up a slow computer, part four. Java security problems cause some big concerns. And in short circuits, Samsung beats Nokia to the Windows Phone 8, Firefox 15 cures an old headache, and the day when everything that could break, broke. Wow, look at old InDesign. Sometimes you lose touch with someone you've known for a long time. Maybe work takes them to another city for a year or two, and when they return, it's like meeting somebody new because they've changed so much. That describes my latest encounter with Adobe InDesign CS6. I have some background with publishing and with InDesign. In 2004, I gave the application very faint praise. I said, and I quote, Note to the Adobe product manager, you've already beaten Quark, now take a look at the features you could borrow from Ventura Publisher. You probably don't give much thought to this also-ran application, but it still has some useful features that you haven't implemented yet. If you want to blow Quark away, borrow some of the power user features from Ventura. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to that eight-year-old review. And as a result, I was invited to Seattle to meet with the InDesign product manager and a dozen or so software engineers. Now, eight years on, Ventura Publisher is dead. If you have Windows 7, you can't even install it. Quark Express is losing market share at about the same rate that a popsicle dropped in a Yuma, Arizona parking lot melts in August. And InDesign? Well, it's become the clear leader in electronic publishing. Reviewing InDesign has become more difficult with each new version because of the specialized features that have been added to help designers and publishers. With version CS6, this is definitely the case. Back in 2004, I said InDesign has a future. And in 2012, the future is here. There's simply no other application available that can do what InDesign does. It's an expensive application. You'll spend a lot of time to master it, too, so it's expensive both in terms of money and time. But for professional publishers, regardless of the medium, there is no other viable choice. Let's take a look at some of the newer improved features in CS6. Some are long overdue. All are welcome. InDesign's text frames used to be locked. That is, if you added enough text to more than fill the frame, you'd see a little marker that indicated overset text. Then you'd have to modify the frame size by dragging a control handle. You might have thought at the time, particularly if you'd placed a frame in an area with a lot of white space around it, that it would be helpful for the frame to expand automatically. Well, now you can specify that capability. The frame can be set to expand vertically, horizontally, or both. Liquid Layout tools show where the next big improvement is going to be. Liquid Layout is an attempt to address designers' needs to produce publications in multiple versions. Perhaps one for print, two more for tablets, both vertical and horizontal, still two more for phones, both vertical and horizontal, and there might even be needs within tablet and phone versions to create subversions for specific devices. Although Liquid Layout doesn't entirely solve the problem, it does make managing the problem easier. 
Using liquid layout still takes a fair amount of time to set up, which makes it useful only for repetitive publications that use the same general layout issue after issue. It's not helpful for one-off designs, such as brochures or posters. Well, at least not particularly helpful. But anybody who has multi-purposed publications that must be created repetitively really should take time to learn this feature now, because it's sure to improve and be a lot stronger in version 6.6 and 7. Content linking is greatly improved, too. You may need to use the same bit of text or graphic in multiple publications, even if you don't need multiple versions of an individual publication. Text from a catalog may be reused in a brochure. Your logo will be repeated across various publications, and probably many times within an individual publication. Situations such as these are always time bombs. Something needs to be modified, and the changes are made in every document, but one that got missed. Linking eliminates that problem and will automatically make the updates with the appropriate warning in advance so that you can unlink an item if you need to retain the old version in a particular location. The Content Collector is another brand new feature in CS6, and it's particularly handy when you need to copy text or graphics from one document to another, or to multiple locations within the same document. There's a Content Collector icon on the toolbar, or you can just press the B key when any tool but the Text tool is active. Click Individual Components to place them in the Collector, then move to a new location in the current document, switch modes for the Collector tool, the modes are Collect and Place, and start placing items, or switch to a new document and place the items you've collected there. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website of some items copied to a new document. And when you place these items, you can specify that you want to create a link so that a change to any one of the items will affect all of them. In addition to that, you can have the content collector place the item and then move on to the next item it has in inventory, or place the item but keep it in inventory and move on to the next item, or place the copy and then continue placing copies of that same item. That's the example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I dropped many copies of the same image, linked them, and allowed the item to stay in the content collector for later use. And here's something that may seem a little anachronistic at a time when almost everything is printed in color. One of InDesign's intriguing new features offers the ability to see your full-color publication in grayscale, or black and white, or monochrome. Those terms tend to be used interchangeably, even though they're not synonymous. What you're seeing actually is grayscale. Oh, why would you want to do this, though? Well, I said almost everything is printed in color, and you might need to see how your full-color document will represent you or your company for those who must print it on a grayscale printer. For example, you send out a brochure as a PDF. You can't guarantee that someone's going to print that in color. They might have to print it on a grayscale printer. It's a good idea to check this, because colors that work together in color might be all but unreadable when they're printed in grayscale. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a document that's intended for use on full-color printing on a four-color press. There's a color photograph, light blue headings, and some blue dots under an introductory paragraph. The proof color options is turned on, and the proof setup is set to CMYK, reflecting the intent to print on a press that uses cyan, magenta, yellow, and black inks. Next, I left proof colors turned on, but opened a custom dialog and set the intent to gray, gamma 
The good news is that the document looks fine in grayscale. The light blue headlines are still quite readable, the color image converted acceptably to grayscale, so now I'm certain that if someone prints this document on a grayscale printer, it'll look okay. The bottom line for InDesign, five cats. Designers need to be ready for anything, and InDesign makes that possible. Although the CS6 version of InDesign doesn't have as many new features as the upgrade from 5 to 5.5 did, the improvements will be of particular interest to anybody who must repurpose print work for the web and mobile devices, to anyone who needs to create forms that can be completed with the Adobe Reader, and to anyone who creates electronic books. For more information, you can visit the Adobe InDesign website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. As computers age, they seem to slow down. The computer that was so fast when you bought it now seems to crawl. Although there's nothing you can do to make it faster than it was originally, it is possible to restore some of that old performance. Some of the actions are easy, and I've covered those in previous programs, enabling ReadyBoost or defragmenting a disk drive, for example. Others are difficult, such as replacing the boot drive with a solid-state drive. This is the final section of a four-part series on how to improve an older computer's performance, and this week we bring out the big guns. Consider the operating system. If you're still running XP or Vista, you would see an immediate speed boost by upgrading to Windows 7. And if you're running Windows 7, upgrading to Windows 8 will provide even better performance. The folks over at TechSpot have an extensive report that shows the performance differences between Windows 7 and the upcoming Windows 8. You'll find a link to that review on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Windows 8 is almost always faster than Windows 7. Sometimes the two versions are about the same, and occasionally Windows 7 is faster on a specific test. But the edge generally is going to go to Windows 8. The trouble is that there's no good path to upgrade from XP to either Windows 7 or 8. In addition to that, your computer's hardware might be incompatible with the newer operating systems, and for those reasons, this is something I suggest with more than a little reluctance. It's not particularly difficult to upgrade the operating system if everything goes right, but upgrades, regardless of the operating system involved, are perilous undertakings. Before starting, you'll want to make sure that you have the installation media for all of the applications on your computer. You'll also want to make sure that you have a complete, current, and tested backup in case you need to recover all of the files that are stored on your computer. Stranger things have happened. Microsoft has tools on its website that will allow you to check installed software and hardware for compatibility problems so that you'll know in advance where the problems will be. These tools are good, but they're not perfect, and sometimes incompatible devices and programs do slip through, and they will cause problems later. So even though Windows 7 is considerably faster than XP and far faster than Vista, a change this major is one to be considered only if you're comfortable with the risks involved and only if you plan to keep that computer for a while. Or maybe you could just ask the computer what's so slow. Click the Start menu and type Performance. Then select Performance Information and Tools from the menu. If no numbers are present on the resulting display, click Rerun the Assessment in the lower right corner. 
few minutes later, you'll have a scorecard for the computer that ranks the machine's processor, memory, graphics, both standard and gaming, and primary hard disk drive. Numbers range from 1.0, which would be unacceptable, to 7.9, which is as high as it goes. The slowest component will be highlighted. On my computer, you'll see the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that the graphics subsystem is the lowest, 5.8, but the data transfer rate, 5.9, isn't much better. This computer isn't too far out of tune, though. Generally speaking, all of the ratings should be relatively close. You wouldn't want to see a 7.9 processor coupled with a 3.2 data transfer rate. That would mean that you have a really fast processor waiting needlessly on a slow disk drive. The disk drives are always going to be the slowest part of any computer, and the processor will have to wait even if the disk subsystem rates 7.9. But the lower the disk rating, the more time the CPU will waste waiting. Once you've completed this process, review the informational links provided, what do these numbers mean, and tips for improving your computer's performance. The graphics scores are particularly interesting and somewhat confusing. Low scores may be okay, depending on how you use the computer. Word processing, spreadsheets, email, and web browsing really don't need high-speed graphics, but they do benefit from a faster CPU and memory. If you edit photos, you'll want a higher graphics score, and video editors will want an even higher graphics score. Those who use their computers for games should pay particular attention to the 3D video score. Improving video scores will require replacing the video subsystem. Many computers use video subsystems that are on the motherboard, but you can turn this off and add a more powerful video card. Yeah, that's another big gun. This week's speed-improving tips are the ones you'll probably want to save until last, after you've tried everything else. And if you're considering these, even though they will provide improvements, maybe it's time to start thinking about replacing the aging computer. Your computer probably has Oracle's Java installed because it's used by many applications, including some web browsers. A security problem with Java could put your computer at risk, but for the risk to be realized, you'll need to make one critical mistake. Even so, now's the time to disable Java to avoid a potential data disaster. Java is a programming language developed by Sun Microsystems, which is now part of the Oracle Corporation. Java applications are typically compiled to what's called bytecode so that they can run on any Java virtual machine regardless of the computer's operating system. Java is intended to let developers write once, run anywhere, and it's one of the most popular programming languages in use. A vulnerability in the Java Security Manager allows a Java applet to grant itself permission to execute any arbitrary operating system commands. An attacker could use social engineering techniques to entice a user to visit a link to a website hosting a malicious applet, and web browsers using the Java 7 plugin are considered to be at high risk. Which browsers, you may wonder? Well, really, it's just a few. Safari, Mozilla Firefox, Google Chrome, and Microsoft Internet Explorer. Yeah, the four most popular browsers. Because the exploit requires social engineering, the user must be made complicit in the attack. An email or website could attempt to convince you to run a malicious Java applet. This is serious because it's unlikely that Oracle will fix this problem anytime soon. Oracle runs on a four-month patch cycle, and bug fixes are delivered two months later. 
Oracle's next expected patch day is in mid-October, and Oracle rarely issues out-of-cycle patches. This threat is sufficiently severe that Oracle should provide an immediate patch. The security vulnerability affects Java version 7, but not any older versions of Java. You might consider downgrading to an older version, but don't do that. It would be very unwise because the older versions have even more security problems. Until Oracle provides a patch, the safest course of action would simply be to disable Java in your browser or all of your browsers. You'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website instructions for disabling Java in Microsoft Internet Explorer, Google Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. And keep those instructions around because when the problem's been resolved, you'll need to go back and reverse the process to re-enable Java. In short circuits, just a few days after losing a patent battle to Apple, Samsung became the first manufacturer to launch a Windows Phone 8. The new phones will begin shipping in the next few months. Apple hasn't sued any manufacturers who make Windows phones, at least not yet. And yes, this is the Windows Phone 8, not the Windows 8 phone. Microsoft previewed some hardware in June and said that Windows Phone 8 models would be in the market by fall. Samsung showed off the Windows 8 tablets, no, that's not a Windows Tablet 8, but a Windows 8 tablet, at an event in Berlin this week, but didn't actually bring along any of the Windows Phone 8 models. You'll see a picture of one, though, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, a photo provided by Samsung Electronics, and yes, that is a stylus you see with the Galaxy Note 2 phone. AirView, that's what they call it, AirView, allows users to hover the S-Pen, yes, they call it an S-Pen, stylus in other words, over an email, an S-Planner, an image gallery, or a video to preview the content without having to open it. This feature enables users to quickly search and see more information in one view without screen transitions. The Galaxy Note 2 comes with a 1.6 GHz quad-core processor, runs the Android 4.1 system, that's the one called Jelly Bean. Phones start with 16 GB of RAM, can be expanded to 64 GB with an expandable micro SD slot. Prices have not yet been announced. The company also announced two new tablets and two new notebook computers with touch screens that will be available with Windows 8. Suggested retail prices for the tablets range from $650 for an 11.6-inch tablet that runs on an Atom processor, has 2 gigabytes of RAM and 64 gigabytes of storage, to $1,200 for a tablet with the same 11.6-inch screen, an Intel i5 core processor, 4 gigabytes of RAM, and 128 gigabytes of storage. Samsung will also ship two new Ultra Notebook computers with 13.3-inch touchscreens and i3 or i5 processors, 4 gigabytes of RAM and 500 gigabytes of storage. Prices are $800 and $850. Uh, internal memo here to Samsung. With just a $50 price difference between the i3 and the i5 models, I really hope you're not planning to build many of those i3s. They're not going to sell. Which version of Firefox are you using? If you're on the beta channel, you have version 15. 
If not, then you're running version 14 or some earlier version. Despite my not uncommon complaints about the amount of memory Firefox consumes, it is the one browser that I cannot be without. And as you probably expect, I am on the beta channel. Version 15 has eliminated one of the major frustrations that previous versions have had. Here's the frustration. Somebody sends you a link, and even though you're scheduled to be at a meeting in a few minutes, you click the link. Then Firefox spends the next five minutes downloading and installing an update. And then you have to restart the browser. Eventually, you're able to follow the link, but you forget about the time and you're late to the meeting. Well, starting with version 15, that won't happen. Updates are handled in the background. Some rendering improvements have been included, too, that take advantage of new web standards. And once again, Mozilla says that memory use has been improved. The primary source of memory leaks in Firefox is add-ons, and just about all Firefox users have at least one add-on installed. That's always been one of the browser's strengths, the ability to create a browser that has features you want by using add-ons. But it's also been a weakness. Version 15 can be downloaded now. It's no longer just in the beta channel. Or if you want to be sure that you always have the latest possible version of Firefox, do check out the beta channel. You'll find links to both the standard version 15 download and the beta channel on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Ah yes, Monday, the day when everything that could break, broke. Alright, truth in commenting here, not everything. But who would believe that both a router and an Ethernet cable would both fail almost simultaneously? It happened, and it took an hour for me to convince myself that what I thought I'd seen was really happening. On a Monday afternoon, when I was quietly working on a client's project while Phyllis was working on the other computer in another room, I noticed that the router looked a little odd. Lights that are supposed to be off were on. Lights that are usually on were off. And the words, do you have an internet connection, floated down the hallway. Well, clearly the problem was the router. The usual solution is a quick power cycle, so I turned the router off, waited a bit, turned it back on. Lights that should have been on were still off. Lights that should have been off were still on. Hmm, never seen that before. Well, okay, so I'll use the reset switch. No change. Well, now it was apparent that the router had suffered a quick and unexpected demise. I'd been planning to replace it in coming months, but now we had a bit of an emergency. Well, I figured I could get Phyllis back to work by unplugging the cable that connects her work computer to the router and plugging it directly into the cable modem, except that that didn't work. When I plugged the cable into the router, the work computer couldn't get an IP address. I tried the usual tricks with IP config and power cycled the computer. Nothing. Then I plugged the cable into a notebook computer. It had an IP address, but that was being provided by the now moribund router. When I turned off the notebook's Wi-Fi adapter, the wired connection couldn't get an IP address from the internet service provider either. I power cycled both the computer and the cable modem. No change. It has to be a bad cable, I thought, but that's ridiculous. It's a brand new Cat5 cable. It's been in service for just two weeks. Cables don't just fail like that. Except that sometimes they do. But I still couldn't believe it, so I called Wide Open West. You guys having a problem with your DHCP server, I asked, hoping that the answer would be yes. 
The answer was no, so in quick order we tried enough combinations of computers and cables to clearly show that the wire from one room to the other was no longer working. A quick trip to the Micro Center, fortunately just a 10-minute drive from here, resulted in a new Wi-Fi router and a 100-foot roll of CAT6 cable. I needed the step up to CAT6 because the new router is faster than the old one. Sometimes something that can't possibly happen happens. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.